This moment in Israel is perplexing. Every day feels like a new episode of Reality Knesset TV. And every weekend, tens of thousands are protesting legislative reforms in the streets. So I, Amanda Borshaldan, turn to my friendly neighborhood philosopher to get some perspective. This is a very powerful moment, interesting moment, scary moment, exciting moment, and it's a pregnant moment. That's Dr. Micha Goodman, the author of Catch 67 and several other books, has made a career of shedding light onto Israeli society, even to Israelis themselves. We sat together over a cup of ginger tea for a 360-degree discussion on this moment right now in Israel for the Times of Israel's inaugural episode of our new weekly exploration of one issue that's shaping Israel and the Jewish world right now. Welcome to What Matters Now. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachuklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K, lawfirm.com, or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement, and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Micha, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Amanda. It's great to be here with you. I always enjoy speaking with you, and I never know what you're going to say, which is such fun. So, Micha, tell me, what matters now? The judicial reform. Okay, the judicial reform. So, for anyone who has lived in some kind of cave for the past several months, the judicial reform is a set of proposals by Justice Minister Yariv Levine and others. And among other things, it would overhaul the high court's ability to overturn rulings that were done in the Knesset and also provide a systematic way of creating political appointees to the Supreme Court and many other things that are controversial. So why is this the most important thing for you, Micha? Well, first of all, I went, this wasn't something I was thinking about for a while. The whole judicial system, there was a debate in the periphery of the Israeli uh, a, a, a public debate. We usually argue about issues regarding the Palestinians and the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. That's the main issue. And some academics were arguing about the judicial issues. And suddenly, all of a sudden, almost overnight, that debate took over the public discourse. And the level of political awareness grew dramatically. This is very interesting. Like people that are very close to me, without naming names, which are on a daily basis very indifferent to political issues. (laughs) 
<laughs> Suddenly they, I mean, they, uh, they barely know the name of the foreign minister, okay? Like they're not, we don't really care about politics and national issues. Suddenly they are, they're awakened. They care. They go to protests in uh, Saturday nights. And I realized, wow, this moment where uh, Israeli indifference has been broken down and a new awareness has been born. And so much, like, I, I think this is patriotism, where so many Israelis care about the structure of our regime. This is a very powerful moment, interesting moment, scary moment, exciting moment. And it's a pregnant moment. Okay, so let's talk about the protest. On any given Saturday night, it can reach up to 100,000, 100,000 more if yes. you combine all the different protests. But as someone mentioned to me recently, that's basically the funeral of a second-tier rabbi. Why does this number seem so high in your world? It's just because it's people that, not, that usually don't go to protest. It's not the regular social activists that are out there in the streets yelling and screaming every, every other day. These are people that are usually just sitting at home watching Netflix. And something is pushing them out of their homes, out of their comfort zone. And the fact that, that so many different types of people, which are usually very indifferent to national issues, now suddenly are awakened and they care and they're protesting, that is, what's, that is one of the reasons why this moment is an interesting moment. Okay, let's zoom out slightly and talk about what brought us here. Okay, so I'll share with you my understanding, and I'm not a constitutional lawyer, okay? This is not my expertise, but I think, I think what I'm going to say is, I think it's more or less correct. Israel is an interesting country because we don't have a constitution. Now, there are countries that don't have constitutions, like, let's say, England, but they have a tradition. They have a tradition. Israel obviously has no tradition because we're a new country and no constitution. So to begin with, we have like a, we have a problem. There's no real official document that defines the relationship between the branches of government. There's, we don't, now, there was supposed to be one. According to Megillat Atzmaut, our Declaration of Independence, right? So the first Knesset, the first Knesset was supposed to, to write a constitution, and then there'll be a, an elections. And then from the second Knesset on, we will have a constitution that will, it's like the constitution is like the rules of the game. And that's what made sense. The first Knesset defines the rules of the game. And then from that moment on, we're playing the game. But what happened in Israel, a classic Israeli moment, we couldn't decide on the rules of the game in our founding moment in the first Knesset back in the late 1940s. We couldn't define, so we didn't create a constitution. So we kind of decided, you know what? Let's play the game without defining the rules of the game. Let's see how that works. And Amanda, surprisingly, it kind of worked. It kind of worked until it doesn't work anymore. And now is that moment where it doesn't work anymore. For 75 years, we were playing a game without really knowing what the roles of the game are. And now it's not working anymore. So I think there's two moments in this story. But beforehand, I want to I want to back up and try to understand how we understand, like, what is, what is a constitution? Okay, this is something that I've been thinking about uh, lately. If laws is the attempt of government to limit the behavior of civilians. Like I can't, when I drive my car, there's a speed limit. That's a law. It limits my behavior, right? So laws limit civilians. Constitution limits governments, right? 
And it limits also the ability of the legislator, of the parliament. It limits, its constitution limits the ability of the parliament to legislate. It says there's certain laws that are unconstitutional. So for civilians, there is behavior that's not illegal. And for the parliament, there is laws which are unconstitutional, like illegal laws. And in Israel, we didn't have the idea of, since we didn't have a constitution, we didn't have the concept that there are laws that are illegal, laws that are unconstitutional, until 1995. And what happened in 1995? We have to understand 1995 in order to understand 2023. So in 1995, Aaron Barak, which was our, the head of the Supreme Court, he interpreted a law legislated by the Knesset in 1992. Now, this law, 1992, called which means basic law of human dignity. Basic law of human dignity that the Knesset legislated in 1992 that basically says that we have basic human rights. Like the first time we legislated our Bill of Rights was 1992. Think about that. Only 1992. And we have like rights for basic, like, like for, we have basic freedoms. But that law, the process that uh, the Knesset went through to legislate that law was the same process of any other law. Like, um, just, you know, by the way, there were 31 MKs that were voting for that law. That's it, not 61. I think it was 31 or 30-something, okay? So three years later, Aaron Barak reads into that law saying that law has constitutional authority, which means that if any law contradicts that law, that basic law of 1992, so the law that contradicts it is illegal. So Barak in 1995 gives the law of 1992 constitutional authority. Now, this is a big debate. If he had, it's an internal debate among academics, among uh, Supreme Court judges at the time, can he do that? Can he decide retroactively, oh, three years ago, the Knesset legislated a constitution? Can he do that? And the argument against that of a Supreme Court judge named Mishael Cheshin was that you can't create a constitution using the same process, legal, pro the same process that creates a regular law. Because put it this way, why would a basic law have more authority over a regular law if it was legislated using the same process. You need some kind of Magna Carta-like ceremony. You need King John to be dragged out there. You need the signing on the document. Something exciting, right? right. Like in the U.S., if I, I think if I understand, to, in order to create a correction of the Constitution, you need to think two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, and then 75% of the state legislators. Like, okay, if you could pass that, then that's authority that enables you to cancel future laws. But the same process that creates a regular law can create a basic law that could cancel regular laws. So that itself, Michel Cheshin said, well, maybe this is not a, con it's just a regular law and it's not a, it doesn't have constitutional authority. But the thing was that once Aaron Barak decided that the law of 1992 is like our constitution, so that means that well, think of it this way, with no drama, no ceremony, no one knew about it, we have a constitution. And we discover we had a constitution three years after it was legislated. So that's interesting. I think that's probably unprecedented, right? That's interesting. And then 
uh, the Supreme Court starts um, being more uh, active and starts canceling laws of the Knesset, saying that they contradict the basic law of the Knesset of 1992. And then they do something else. They start reading into the basic law of 1992 rights that are not written there, like equality. Very important rights, by the way. They start reading. And, um, and another thing happens, by the way, the, this, is also, this becomes very complicated, um, the Yoetza Mishpati, how do you say that's the... Uh, the Attorney General and all the kind of uh, advisors. So, but, so the advisors now have a lot of power, partially because they say, listen, they said to the government, if there's a law you want to legislate, you can't, we're, uh, effectively they had veto power over the ability of the government to promote legislation in the Knesset. Because they were saying, we don't think that law is constitutional. We think that law contradicts the basic law of 1995, of 1992, sorry. So uh, let's not legislate it. So the government now feels very limited in its ability to promote legislation in the parliament. Now, all this leads up to a narrative that started growing in the Israeli right, and it's the following narrative. Power is now shifted from the parliament to the Supreme Court. The parliament can legislate laws, the Supreme Court could cancel those laws. And there's nothing the parliament can do about it. Once the, the Supreme Court cancels a decision of the parliament, there's nothing the parliament can do about it. It only has to obey. So if power is being shifted from the parliament to the Supreme Court, um, that means that civilians that are expressing their will every elections, choosing their, their representatives to represent the will of the people, well, when the, when the legislative represent the will of the people, what they legislate becomes illegal. So actually there was a sense that now the people are being robbed of their power. Now, I mean, this is just part one of a narrative that was growing in the Israeli right. Okay, let's pause here. So just to recap, uh, to make sure I understand what's <laughs> okay. going on. There are two original sins that are leading up to the moment that we're having now in terms of the feelings on the on the political right. One is the lack of constitution at the foundation of the state, and the other is this uh, strange mechanism that created our basic laws or quasi-constitution in 1992, but ratified, shall we say, in 1995 by the Chief Justice, Aaron Barak. And the right feels like it doesn't have uh, any kind of power when it's uh, choosing its uh, legislators because actually the high court can usurp that power willy-nilly anytime it wants. That's right. So this was criticized by Michel Cheshin, Supreme Court judge, and later on by Ruti Gabizon. It, it was more academic debate. This issue did not divide Israeli politics. It wasn't like right-wingers were against the, ju the judicial reform of Aaron Barak and left-wingers were for it. It was an internal debate among lawyers and around professors. And in politics, they were debating West Bank, Judea, Samaria, Palestinian settlements, that whole thing. But then a narrative was born that made this issue political. More and more people on the right were saying, well, we, we just noticed an interesting coincidence, that power started shifting from the Knesset to the Supreme Court, which means from the body that the people elect to a body that people don't elect, when the right-wingers started winning. <laughs> so a narrative was born that the left could not get itself elected. So what it did, it robbed the elected body from its power. And that's a way of people on the right, this like, interesting conspiracy theory on the right 
is that the left are sore losers, is that because people that seem like they are on the left side of Israeli politics dominate the Supreme Court, so by moving power from the Knesset, which is mostly right-wing, to the Supreme Court, that is mostly left-wing, by doing that, the left that could not win an election still wins in the battle for power because the power has shifted the Supreme Court. So once that narrative became the dominant narrative, and that narrative started accumulating popularity and power, that led us to this moment. Now, so flip real, so now this moment is the counter-revolution. It's the pendulum swinging the other way. Extremely to the other way. Now what Yariv Levine is doing, by the way, I don't think this reform will pass as it is, but just to understand this reform, this is not canceling Aharon Barak's constitutional revolution, shifting power uh, to the Supreme Court. This is doing much more than that. This is saying, because it's, it's a complicated reform, but I just want to mention two components of this reform. One is saying the Knesset can override any decision of the Supreme Court. And the majority it needs to override a decision of the Supreme Court is 61. Now, just to remind anyone that's listening, any coalition by definition has 61 in Israel. This coalition, the current coalition has... 64. 64. So even if three MKs stay at home... <laughs> they still can override a decision of the Supreme Court. So it means that the Supreme Court's ability to cancel decisions of the Knesset because they're unconstitutional is now taken away from them. But there's another piece to this uh, judicial reform of Yariv Levin, and that is that effectively politicians will appoint the Supreme Court judges. So if you add this up, this means politicians appoint Supreme Court judges and then those politicians can cancel decisions of the Supreme Court judges. That seems to many people, myself included, by the way, as a violation of the balance between the branches. It's kind of like Barak's reform, just upside down. If the original sin of Barak's reform is that he violated the balance because he gave too much power to the Supreme Court, Yariv Levine is not restoring the balance. He is replicating the violation of the balance. Just this time, the power is shifting towards the Knesset. So, which takes me to um, um, why this moment is so pregnant. This is a metaphor. <laughs> I love this more me metaphor of a moment that's pregnant. I, I know pregnancy, Micha. <laughs> Let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of know, yeah. <laughs> Just we don't know what this moment is pregnant with. I'll try. I, I want to sell, and man, I want to sell you two possibilities. Like, how does how does this end? Okay, so it could end has it could have a terrible ending. It could have an, a, a very powerful ending. This moment, and I'll try to sell you both two scenarios. Okay, <laughs> one scenario is the constitutional breakdown scenario, and, it's, and I think we're like two or three steps away from that. I don't think it's going to happen. By the way. I'm saying it could happen. Meaning the quasi-constitution, the basic clause would be repealed or what? Here's how it could be played out. Let's say Yariv Levine's reforms pass, as Israelis say, al-maleh, completely. Effectively, canceling the power of the Supreme Court to cancel decisions of the Knesset. Okay. The next day, the Supreme Court convenes. 
and they get together and they decide that the Levine's reforms are unconstitutional. So they cancel it. So let's try to think about this. They're canceling the cancellation of their power to cancel. Well, it is all about cancel culture now, right? So <laughs> That's it right. Works. Yeah. But can, can you follow me logically? Yep. Let me, let's, let's say it's, it's, for it's the double negative. You're, you have the Supreme Court who is canceling the power of Yariv Levine to cancel their own power. So we're at a to set cancel their null. power to cancel. Right, exactly. Okay. So now we're at zero and we're back to where we are today. No, no. Actually, I think we're in a new place in history. Okay. Because if the Knesset cancels the power of the Supreme Court to cancel the Knesset, and the Supreme Court cancels the Knesset's attempt to cancel the power of the Supreme Court to cancel the Knesset, I see your eyes, but I think you're following me. I think I hope. <laughs> so here's where we are. The day later, as far as the Knesset is concerned, hey, the Supreme Court can't cancel us anymore. We canceled them. And the Supreme Court say, hey, we can cancel the Knesset because we canceled their cancellation of our power to cancel, right? Okay, so now we have two universes. The universe that the Supreme Court is living in, where it still could cancel decisions of the, of the government. And the universe of the government is living where, where it's now liberated from the, from, from the Supreme Court. Okay, so now let's say three days later, the Israeli military is sending soldiers to evacuate an illegal Palestinian post in Area C. It happens all the time. And the Palestinians petition to the Israeli Supreme Court and saying, listen, Please stop them from doing this. And the Supreme Court looks into this and say, you know what, this is unconstitutional. So you tell the government, you can't do that. The governor's saying, yeah, but you don't tell us what to do anymore. Okay, now we're in a very scary scenario. Let's say your name is Herzi Halevi. Herzi Halevi is our Ramatkal. Right, the head of the army. The head of the army. The Supreme Court told you, don't do it. The army says, we don't listen to them anymore. Go do it. Who do you listen to? Now, here's the thing, Amanda. Israel has managed to survive 75 years with our chief of staff, the head of the army, never facing this dilemma. And once our chief of staff, our head of the army, faces this dilemma, or the head of the police faces this dilemma, or the head of the Shin Bet of our like FBI faces this dilemma, or the Supreme Court tells you one thing, the government tells you anything, and you don't know who you listen to, I can't imagine a scarier moment for Israeli democracy. It's like, you know how Ray Kurzweil, the, the um, futurist, he says... In the future, there'll be their singular moment. That's when AI passes our human intelligence. And he says, beyond that moment, we can't predict anything. It's like a black hole where there's new laws of physics. I think once we reach a constitutional moment, beyond that moment, we, anything could happen. It's, it's the twilight zone. It's unfamiliar territory for us. And when people say that's the beginning of the end, the beginning of something horrible... I identify with that. Okay, but it doesn't sound like a pregnancy to me. It sounds more like a divorce parent divorce, situation. Yes. No, I'm saying this moment could lead, yes. and we're two steps away. Just think about how close we are. Because when Israelis think about the end of, of Israel, we usually think about Iran, we think about other issues. I never thought that it could end because, because of this issue, because of a constitutional breakdown in Israel. But why would you not think that internal strife wouldn't uh, fall the kingdom yet again? I mean, we've seen it already in history. You're right. This is what usually brought us down. So I don't think this is going to happen. I'm just saying the fact that we could see this happening within a few months, this constitutional breakdown is terrifying. But Amanda, I want to sell, I want to sell you a different scenario. All right. I'm all ears. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let me look at the polls. This is what we see. We see majority of Israelis 
want to reform the judicial system. They think Aaron Barak went too far. But they don't want this reform, Yariv Levine's reform. They think it's too quick, too radical, too revolutionary. We want to reform, not this reform. A more subtle, more balanced reform. Or, they put it, if um, liberal democracies are healthy when there is a tension between the branches, between the Supreme Court and the parliaments. Barak violated the tension, gave too much power to the Supreme Court. Levine is violating the, the tension, giving too much power to the Knesset. What we want is the tension itself, to restore the tension. Now, the tension between those two bodies is a pain in the neck for them, for the politicians and for the judges. It's a massive, constant battle and headache for them. But it's their headache. Their headache is our liberty. Their tension is our liberty. And I think what most Israelis say, we need to restore the tension, not to replicate the violation of the tension, just this time towards the parliament. That's what most Israelis want, and there's something else they want. They think that these reforms that will restore the tension need to be done um, within the framework that will create broad consensus. You can't create a constitution or change the constitution without having real consensus. So I think the two aspects that most Israelis agree on. So here we have something very interesting. If I notice, like from the point of view of history of ideas, it's interesting. People on the left, like on the hardcore left, they don't want to make any changes in the judicial system. So people on the left are now very conservative. They want to conserve the status quo exactly the way they are. So left-wingers are thinking like right-wingers, okay? <laughs> on the other hand, on the far right, you have people that want to be radical, change everything, revolutionize everything. It's just interesting. So you have right-wingers thinking like radical left-wingers. <laughs> so what happens when the left is conservative and the right is radical? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I love this. This is great. Yes. <laughs> okay. But most people in the soft right, soft left, in radical center, no, it's just the majority, they want change as opposed to the conservative left, but not this change as opposed to the radical right. They want soft change that will restore the balance. So that's interesting. So I want to take this point and add it to, to something we said before. This moment has two qualities in it, if I feel it correctly. One, high alertness. You know, people that don't care about politics are protesting in the streets, high level of alertness and invisible consensus, invisible consent. And this invisible consent is so interesting. We agree and we don't know that we agree because Israelis are today polarized in the streets, polarized on social media, and they agree in the polls. We hate each other in social media, but we agree with each other in the, according to the polls. This is, by the way, so absurd. This is such an Israeli typical paradox where we agree with each other in the polls and we hate each other in social media. It means that if we, if it, I don't think this will end up in civil war, but if it will end up in civil war, it'll be the most absurd civil war in the history of civil wars. It'll be a civil war between civilians that agree with each other. Okay, that's how weird this moment is. So if we add these together, political alertness plus political agreements, that could lead to a foundation of a real constitution for Israel. It could lead to a constitutional moment. And a constitutional moment means that Israel legislates, maybe it looks like this, something that's called Chok Yesoda Chakika, the basic law of legislation, which is something we didn't have for 75 years that defines and designs the rules of the game. 
How many MKEs does it take to override decision of the Supreme Court? It can't be 61, maybe 67. They'll figure it out. How many Supreme, maybe 70, maybe 80. Yes. How many Supreme Court judges does it take in order to cancel decision of the Knesset? It can't just be like accidental. It has to be. And they'll figure out like the laws of the game that we, most Israelis could agree on. And then that means we finally have our version of constitution that we all signed up for. So that would be a very exciting moment. And I think this moment could lead because that we are all highly engaged. We know that. And we also mostly agree. We just don't know that. We put that together. This could. So Amanda, if you're in a moment that could lead on the one hand to constitutional crisis, and on the other hand, to constitutional moments, um, and we don't know where this, <laughs> we don't know where this is taking us. I think that makes a very interesting moment. The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. So who is the Moses to lead us out of the 75 years of the desert without this constitution? Who is the person to actually lead and take charge and bring this forward? That's a very good question. Um, right now, it's President Herzog. He's supposed to be the peacemaker. He's supposed to be the person that could shift Israeli history from constitutional crisis to constitutional moments. My dream is that we'll have like the Israeli equivalent of, you know, Philadelphia back then. Right, a constitutional congress. Exactly. And it probably won't be as dramatic, but like, a, like, a, like, a, like the president will have, will have some kind of a constitutional congress where uh, serious people representing all communities in Israel will take advantage of this moment where Israelis really care about our invisible constitution and express their invisible consensus and design a reasonable you know, constitution. Or I would say, and we don't have to have a complete constitution. A basic law to find the rules of the game is enough. It would be a tremendous achievement. And, uh, and obviously we need, what's important is that this will happen if BB, if BB, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Prime Minister Netanyahu, will capture this opportunity. Okay, so let's talk about him a little bit. Okay. I don't know him like you do. I've never shared a stage with him or anything like that. And and I read the review that you uh, did of his uh, biography, of his autobiography. And I just wonder if he, this is just a big uh, fake out, if this is some kind of thing, like we, what we had several years ago with the annexation, which just seemed to be on the doorstep, it seemed to be almost happening and then it all went away immediately once things got straightened out with the Abraham Accords. Is this this kind of moment? Is he just bluffing everyone? So I think the analogy you're creating is fascinating. Let's let's unpack that. I think it was 2020, right? And all COVID, COVID years are all just <laughs> one event, right? I think, so we thought we're going towards annexation. And that created a tremendous amount of anxiety in Israel, in the U.S., and in the Middle East. 
And then almost overnight, instead of annexation, we had peace. And we had the Abraham Accords. And the brilliance of Israel, of political leadership at that moment, which Bibi was a part of it, was the alchemy of turning anxiety into opportunity. The anxiety of annexation turned into, transformed into opportunity for peace. Are we in that same moment? That anxiety of a constitutional breakdown will turn to opportunity for constitutional moments. Are we in that moment? I would say that it's highly probable that this will have a good ending. Um, and the reason I say that is because, first of all, we have that precedent. We also know that Netanyahu himself is celebrating that precedent in his book, like how he knew, like he's taking credit for that alchemy, for that transforming anxiety into opportunity of back then from annexation to peace. So maybe he'll be doing this again. But also, I must say, what we see now is also a window into everything that's interesting and weird about this new government. I think it's interesting and weird. Those are two terms, that, <laughs> not exactly how I would describe it, but yes, interesting and weird. Yes, about this new government. This new government is a marriage between two different currents of, of right-wing Israeli politics. Now, they're, ideologically speaking, they are very different currents. The only thing they have in common is a brand. They're right-wing. <laughs> but besides a shared brand, it's very different ideologies. One ideology is called the conservative ideology, which is called right-wing. And then there's messianic ideology, which is called right-wing. Now, Amanda, messianism and conservatism, if, if I'm saying it correctly, those are two opposite ideologies. Let's try to drill into this because this is very interesting because this, this government is a marriage between two, between opposites. And usually people say, this is a very homogeneous government. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's a very heterogeneous government. And conservative way of thinking is, uh, I would say, has two components to it. One, uh, I mean, I'm talking about specifically Bibi Netanyahu, which is, which is, which is conservative, in, has two aspects. One, understand that you can't predict the future. You can't predict the results of your own actions. And you definitely can't predict the unintended consequences of your own actions. Like an example I like to give is in, um, is in the 1990s, when the internet was created, there was a lot of techno-optimism. People were saying that this will lead to more democracy and more human rights around the world because, and it made sense, because if you have democratization of information, and that will lead to democratization of power. That made sense, right? 20 years later, you have democratization of disinformation and conspiracy theories go mainstream. And you say, hey, hey, how did this happen? Internet was supposed to promote democracy, not threat democracy. Well, no one saw it. No one predicted it. This is the law of unintended consequences. And we can go on and on with this law, but conservative people believe in the law of unintended consequences. And, and that's why, and that creates very careful politics. Don't change everything very quickly. Change some things slowly, gradually. That's... Now, if you add Bibi's brand of Zionism to that, you have hyper-conservatism. Why? Because you know how people usually are daring when they have nothing to lose? And they become very careful once they make a lot of money, right? I don't know that from personal experience. <laughs> okay. But you know, someone that's starting a startup now from scratch takes risks. And once they make a force and they're like, okay, they take less risks, right? So think about Jewish history. In 1948, Ben Gurion took real risks, but we had nothing. 75 years later, we have, I don't want to say we have everything, but we have, Israel is a miracle. 
in 48, it was formed in 67, it expanded, and then we have the high tech. Like, Israel is, and once it's so successful, you become, okay, let's not rock the boat. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not make very quick changes, radical changes. And Bibi is a, is inheritor of his father's thinking. I think the key to understand Bibi's thinking is his father's philosophy, which says um, the, the Jewish state can collapse at any moment. It's a, an achievement of Jewish history, but it's a very fragile achievement. And it could collapse any moment. That's why Bibi, throughout his career, is probably the most one of the most careful Israeli leaders. Careful when it comes to peace, careful when it comes to war. In 2014, uh, the the people the grass was a, there was a grassroots calling in 2014 when we were in um, Tsukaitan, the operation in Gaza of 2014. People on the right were saying, "Conquer Gaza, destroy Hamas, go for a massive operation." He didn't do that. At that same time, Barack Obama and John Kerry were pushing him to a diplomatic journey towards peace and two-state solution. He didn't do that. He almost always avoids military adventures and diplomatic adventures. Careful when it comes to peace, careful when it comes to war, because, and people think, oh, he's so careful. He is so afraid. He's sacrificing what he believes in. People don't understand. No, no. His carefulness, his fear, is not sacrificing his ideology. That's implementing his ideology. He thinks the state of Israel is a fragile achievement, and we don't rock the boat. We don't know the unintended consequences. So, so that's BB's very, very. His partners are not conservative. <laughs> his partners want dramatic change, and they want it now. They are messianic. Now, you could become a radical thinker and think that you could predict the future, and you can predict the results of your actions on history. If you're on the left, because Karl Marx gives you like a map of the future, or you're on the right, because a prophet Isaiah gives you a map of the future. But when you have the confidence that you can predict, because you know where history is going, like Marxists on the left or Messianics on the right, if you know where history is going, then you feel very comfortable to do like radical changes because you can predict their results. So we have this government is a marriage between messianic right-wingers and conservative right-wingers. And I must say, Amanda, the gap, it's like, you know how you have, like in today, companies can give the same brand to very different products. Like you have a, the same brand for shoes and for chairs. The same name. The same name, the same <laughs> brand. But you know, there are different products, different. So today in politics, very different currents of the right have the same name of right. By the way, the left has the same problem. I won't go down to the problems of the left. And now that is why this government is a marriage between two very, very different currents of Israeli right. And uh, you have people on the right that want to completely, for example, the judicial reform, they want radical reform now. And I think Bibi's temperament, which we have not, we not heard him completely yet, will be not radical, more moderate, not now, maybe a little bit later, more gradual. And if Bibi's idea, and I'm not saying, see, to predict Bibi's behavior, I think there's three different, different components, his personality, his interests, and his ideology. Now, I think his personality is very careful. His personality is in harmony with his ideology. He's always, he always thinks there's a catastrophe around the corner, but his interests might be in contradiction with his ideology. He has an interest. He has a whole court case against him. He has his own interests. So what will predict Bibi's behavior? His interests, which might lead him to extreme reform, or his ideology, which might lead him to create restraints 
and to block at least some elements of this reform. We don't know. We don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. But if Bibi comes out as a great statesman and joins Bougie Herzog as Israel's president to transform this moment from constitutional breakdown to constitutional moment, it won't be because he's turning his back to his right-wing ideology. It's because he'll be loyal to his conservative right-wing ideology. And he's done it before. And he's done it before. So we don't know. We have no idea. I'm willing to offer my guess. I think this will end okay. I don't think we're on the verge of a crisis and civil war. I think this will end much better than it seems. But my guess is as good as anyone else. And I'm using Bibi's ideology to predict his behavior and not other elements in his ecosystem to predict his behavior. You have so much to digest. I really appreciate you sitting with me today. Thank you. Such a pleasure. What's with the optimistic music? I mean, Micha said everything is going to be okay. I'm going with that. Wow, that was uh, quite the conversation. Thanks for joining me on our first episode of What Matters Now. Now, if you enjoyed this weekend's conversation, and I know I did, please subscribe to What Matters Now wherever you find your podcasts. Special thanks, as always, to producer Gilad Brownstein, to my podcast partner, Jessica Steinberg, and to our main sounding board, Mick Weinstein. See you next week for more What Matters Now. Now.